Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Turn on my mic. Good afternoon. You're listening to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, everywhere else. So welcome aboard. Oh, man, what a great show we have lined up for today. Um, We've got a lot to talk about, a lot to do, uh, so sit back and enjoy. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Good afternoon, Annie. It's another Tuesday, and... Looks like we got great guests again, as always. Uh, yes, as always, great guests lined up. Uh, we've got starting off with Kenneth Timmerman. Uh, what an amazing man. If you read his bio, just what hasn't this guy done? Um, he has a new book out called ISIS Begins, and uh, it's a novel of the Iraq War. And, as a matter of fact, he had been captured by Muslims and held for 24 days. Uh, so he has a lot to talk about. He is a foreign expert. He is a correspondent, an author. Oh, geez, half a dozen other different things he does also. So we'll have a lot of fun with him on the first half of the show. And the second half, uh, this guy ran for president in the Libertarian Party and came in second uh, with that. His name is Austin Peterson. He's running for the Senate out of Missouri. And if anyone's been catching the news today, um, President Trump is in Missouri right now introducing the new VA chief uh, and speaking before the vets in a VFW uh, rally. Uh, what an amazing, amazing rally, because I was watching parts of that just before coming yeah, here on the show. Uh, he had yeah. a 94-year-old World War II veteran up on the stage with him. The guy was in the audience, and he just called him out of the audience up onto the stage, and it started bringing tears to my eyes. It was absolutely He was sharp as a whip, too. Sharp as a whip. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a lot uh, going on, a lot to talk about, but let's get the show rolling. I want to welcome everyone that's listening up in the chat rooms, up on iTunes, Facebook, um, YouTube, everywhere else. But those listening know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Police Officer Gregory Casales of Pomona Police Department in California. His end of watch was Friday, March 9th of this year. And this article, and I can give the proper credit to it, is by Sarah Parvini. Um... And it's from L.A. Now. 
Arturo Famat Jr. treasured the weekends he spent with his brother-in-law, Pomona police officer Gregory Casales. Casales loved baseball, and when Game 6 of the World Series fell on Halloween last year, the two spent the night watching the Dodgers play while their wives their children trick-or-treating. Recalled looking at Casales that night as, as he sat on the couch and fed his newborn son from a bottle. You're truly happy, huh? Vermont remembered asking. He smiled with a big smile I will never forget. He told me, all my dreams are coming true. It's times such as those that he will miss the most, Vermont said as he fought back tears at Casales' funeral at Purpose Church in Pomona. Casales, 30, was shot and killed when a suspect fired on him through a door on March 9th. He had followed a reckless driver into a Pomona apartment complex where the man was barricaded in one of the units. As Casales approached, he was struck by bullets fired from behind a door. He was taken to a hospital where he died. A second officer who was shot while trying to save Casales is recovering from his wounds. The suspect, Ayesis de Jesus Valencia, was charged with one count of murder and seven counts of attempted murder, among others. He could face the death penalty if convicted. Inside the church, Fermat told the mourners who filled the pews how much he had hoped this moment would never happen. One day, Fermat said, he came home to find that Casales had given his son a sticker in the shape of a police badge. The boy excitedly ran up to Fermat and said, I'm a superhero like T.O. Greg. He didn't take that sticker off for two days. Hundreds attended Casales' service, including California Governor Jerry Brown and uniformed law enforcement officers representing multiple agencies, friends and colleagues, described the rookie as a loving husband and father, a joker and a proud officer. Yeah, it does hurt, his father Gregory Casales said as he stood at the lectern. I'm mad as hell. His son was a determined man, he said one who always accomplished what he set his mind to. He was twice the man that I was, the elder Casales said. He spoke slowly, pausing at times to regain his composure. To Pomona Police Chief Michael Oliveri, Casales was a guardian who achieved his dream of joining the police department. Casales took on various positions. He was a record specialist and a jailer before becoming a police recruit to better prepare himself to achieve his goal of becoming an officer. He was sworn in as a police officer in September and was nearly finished with his field training when he was killed. Reading from Casales' application essay, Oliveri let the rookie officer explain his dream in his own words. Growing up in Lincoln Heights, Casales wrote, he witnessed how hard it was for law enforcement to stop crime. In the essay, he recalled talking with the officers as he played in the street. They would take time out of their day and give kids D-A-R-E, Dare Dodger baseball cards. They cared for us, Casales wrote. From then he knew he wanted to be a police officer and make a difference. He chose Pomona because he grew up in a similar environment. His parents moved the family to El Sereno when he was a, was a teenager. Officer Casales you certainly made a difference, Oliveri said, as he finished reading Casales' words. San Bernardino County Sheriff's Deputy Christian Guevara, 
who attended the academy with Casales, remembered his friend for his sense of humor. Guevara said the two would argue for days over silly disagreements, such as which type of soup was better, mandu or pozzoli, and they laughed about the points of tears, to the point of tears, he said. The pair made a pact when they were in the academy that they would help each other in some way in the future, he said. I know he will be with me in the street. He will be with me in time of need, Guevara said. He will be my guardian angel for the rest of my career. Toward the end of the funeral service, a video tribute showed the photographs of Casales over the years. Pictures of him on his birthday flashed by, followed by others in which he was dressed in his baseball and football uniforms or was hugging his wife and sons. Love Me by Los Bucos slowly played in the background as one of the final images filled the screen. Casales held his son's hand as they walked down a railroad together, their backs to the camera. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Casales. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that served as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into the future. And we dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. God bless each and every one of them. back 
you're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, Kinetic High Five, The Fix FM, out of Charleston, South Carolina, up on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, all oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle of southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most just Annie, along with Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we're waiting mm-hmm. for our guest to call in, uh, but you were watching the um, the news with the Trump over in Missouri uh, with the GFW sure. Hall introducing the mm-hmm. new VA uh, chief there. Uh, man, <laughs> it don't get any better than that. Yeah, I think he he needs to keep this up and, and keep the focus um, on his accomplishments, which he he reiterated today. Um, and um, I really think if he does that consistently, we're not going to have any problems in, in November. I really don't think we will. No, I, I think it is a red tide, tide rising. And I'm going to start yeah. posting that. I started that earlier today. Hashtag <laughs> red tide rising. <laughs> really tick off the bill out there. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's funny. Um, I started off a little bit of a pissing contest in my own family. <laughs> I got a brother of mine. What, what happened? Uh, he used he used to be a conservative. If anyone goes to my Facebook page, it's under my name, Ann Ubellas, or look it up on Southern Sense. Um, <clears throat> I posted up a mime that has pictures of all different uh, American politicians that met with Putin one-on-one. Uh, you had Bubba. For those who don't know who Bubba is, that's Bill Clinton. Uh, you've got Hillary. Billy Boy. Uh, yeah, uh, as I call him, Schmuck Schumer. Uh, Pelosi, among others. Uh, so there's all these other American politicians that had one-on-one with Putin. <laughs> so the last one was like, say, patriot, 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 patriot. And then there's a picture of Trump with Putin. And it's just traitor. <laughs> so I posted it. Yeah, up. I saw that <laughs> on uh, Twitter. It's, it's yeah. so funny the way so, the way that's been. They, you know, anything that Trump does, yeah. it's, it's treacherous <laughs> and traitorous and anything that the left <laughs> does is is it's in the name of um liberty and freedom and the American way. Yeah, so he he, and, he and for the children. Because, yeah, I wonder how many of them sat one on one with Putin without an interpreter. And I says, Huh, how about Bubba with his half a million dollar speech uh, he gave in Russia. Uh, how about Hillary with the uranium deal? Uh, how many times did she sit down one on one with Putin and, and Bubba? Yeah. <laughs> the four hundred million that went to the Clinton Foundation. And he goes, "Oh, that's fake news." So of course I put up fake news. Uh, excuse me. Why don't you Google mm-hmm. it and look up also the articles written by. Admiral Lyons on this subject and his interview on my radio show discussing this. Yeah. Are you going to call Admiral Lyons fake news? Really? There's <laughs> <laughs> a windstorm going on in my own family. <laughs> well, I like that he, um, he kicked everybody out of the room except for him and and Putin and the interpreters. It, it kind of reminds me of that movie. I don't know if you've ever seen Pretty Woman, Pretty Woman with um, Richard Gere. And Julia Roberts, but towards the end, Richard Gere wanted to um, meet with his adversary, and uh, they kicked all the lawyers out the room. And um, even his own personal lawyer was upset with them, like, you know, me too, I gotta go. 
And Richard Gere said, yeah, you got to go. It's just me and him. And they worked out a good deal, you know, the two. And that's what that reminded me of when Trump went one-on-one with Putin. Yeah. I'm just sending a uh, message to um, our guest agent to make sure he hasn't called in to let him know that we are live now. So hopefully he'll call. It's probably him in on the line right now. Yeah. Let's welcome I see. Ken Timmerman. Good afternoon, Ken. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How, how about you? Oh, I'm I'm having fun. I was causing, I don't know if you heard, I was causing a firestorm in my uh, own family when I print, uh, posted a uh, mime showing all the American political leaders that sat down with Putin over the years, including Hillary and Bubba and Pelosi and Schumer, and all of them say patriot, 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 and one had a picture of Putin says traitor. <laughs> and I closed the firestorm right. in my own family. <laughs> right. Well, yes, it's not surprising, unfortunately. Uh, people have a short, uh, uh, short memories and a uh, little sense of history, huh? <laughs> yeah, Hillary with the reset button spelled wrong, things like that. Uranium One, anyone can say that. All right. So I'm having fun with that. Oh, well, you've got a new book out, and uh, I want to let you know that we're up live on Facebook and YouTube so people can be watching the video, too, as they're listening in. Oh, good. And uh, you've got a new book out called uh, ISIS Begins, a novel of the Iraq War. And, man, I, I love it when I come across writers such as yourself that when I pick up a book, I really don't want to put it down at all. But I got to chastise you. You sent it to me, but you didn't autograph it. Shame on you. Oh, oh. Well, that, I, I apologize. We'll have to take care of that, yes. <laughs> you know, the book is extremely fascinating, and I actually, as I was reading it, was Googling different things that you had in the book to see if you're using fact-based things and i was amazed at how much you you have this novel here that is based on a lot of fact you know uh, what drove you to write this well uh, you're absolutely right about that there is, there is a lot of fact in the book and it's kind of fun to to do a fact versus reality uh, check in, in different places but uh, i started out actually uh going on mission trips and and reporting trips to northern iraq uh, just after the surge be, uh, in 2007, 2008, and continued up until just this past summer. I was back again uh, last summer uh, in the Nineveh Plain in the north, and I started out to write a nonfiction book. I was going to write a book about the persecution of Christians in Iraq. Um, I even had a title. I was going to call it The Blood of the Iraqi Martyrs. And my agent at the time in New York said, Ken, you know, I've talked to a number of publishers. Nobody wants to publish a book about Iraqi Christians. Nobody cares. There's not an audience for that in the United States. I said, you've got to be out of your mind. Uh, uh, America is, a, is certainly a, a Judeo-Christian nation. Uh, people go to church. They don't care about the Christians of Iraq. And he said, no, I couldn't care less. Uh, and one of the people who I was traveling with, Reverend Keith Roderick, who uh, since uh, has gone to meet his maker, um, said, Ken, write a novel. Uh, Keith was an Anglican priest. He said, Put, do this as a novel. Do it in a way that people can connect with it viscerally. They can connect with it emotionally, not as a kind of dry story or a, a journalistic story, but do this as, a, as a, you know, a human interest, a human story, right, with real characters that people can connect with. And so that's what I set out to do. Um, and you'll find that the 
the main character of the book uh, is he's an Iraqi Christian interpreter. Um, this is somebody who's going to be immediately familiar to anyone who's ever served in the armed forces in Iraq, right? Uh, the opening scene of the book is when uh, he's with a special forces unit and they take down a terror cell. Well, guess what? The terrorists are speaking Arabic, uh, and so they need a translator to help them. The Americans need a translator to help them understand what the terrorists are saying. So this, this Iraqi Christian, uh, and there were many, many people like him, uh, get tired by uh, the U.S.-led uh, coalition, and he goes out on missions with uh, U.S. soldiers. So right away, the, the character himself is somebody that American, Americans from the military will find immediately uh, familiar uh, and then I use him to kind of tell the story of what's going on with the Christians in northern Iraq. You know, it's funny uh, that Anglican was the one that was uh, helping you with the book, uh, because if you remember when the um, Kurds and Christians were caught on the top of that mountain for, oh, good Lord, how many months were they up there? Uh, I belonged to right. an Anglican church, and we went and mm-hmm. were raising funds to get food and supplies over to them. Uh, the Anglican Church is really huge in missions such as this. Uh, so I'm glad That's that right. you had that type of a guidance. Uh, people are unaware of it. And for for Americans here to be completely uh, unaware of the persecution of Christians throughout all the Muslim lands, because it's not just in Iraq, it's in Iran, right. if it's in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Nigeria, all, of course, Nations where Muslims are predominant, the attack on Christianity is unbelievable. And we just sit back on our hands, you know, blithely go on our way and completely ignoring the martyrdom of these people. That's right. No, that's absolutely true. And and even if it, from time to time, you know, in the prayers for the people, people, you know, they'll say, well, let's pray for the persecuted Christians around the world. But it's it's very vague. It's very it's disembodied. Uh, it, it, people don't have a picture in their minds of what that means. So that's why I wrote this as a novel, to give uh, Americans a picture, something that they can latch on to so they can really understand what it means to be persecuted by jihadi Muslims who are chasing you down. Uh, in the case of my narrator, you know, it start, at one point his name is put on a list and nailed to the, uh, to the door of a mosque, right? So everybody in the neighborhood will know who he is and go after him. And he's chased, and he's literally chased throughout this book by jihadi, uh, jihadis and, and ordinary Muslims as well. That's the thing. It's, it's not just organized terror groups. It's organized Muslims as well. But the whole story of Mosul, right, during the ISIS takeover, uh, what made it so tragic was that uh, you would have some of the Christians who stayed behind they would they were murdered because their Muslim neighbors turned them into ISIS. Uh, so it was neighbor against neighbor. Uh, it's it's a horrible situation. And now in my as I say my most recent trip back to the Nineveh Plain last year, Christians are still hesitating to return uh, even into the Nineveh Plain where much of ISIS begins takes place. It's the historic. Christian homeland in northern Iraq between Mosul and Erbil. Even there, Christians are hesitating to return home. Uh, their homes have been devastated. There's no electricity, no water. Uh, the churches obviously have been desecrated and, and torn down. The cross is smashed to pieces. It's, it's just horrible. Uh, and, and we don't 
have a very good sense of that in the United States. We don't kind of feel that in our gut. We don't, most of us don't know somebody who has suffered through that. So now you can buy this book, ISIS Begins, and you can say, ah, I know somebody, or I at least have read about somebody who has been through this type of thing. Yeah, it it is a shame that Americans are not waking up to that uh, because these people are suffering tremendously. They don't realize it starts off where they have to wear the symbol of the Nazarene, which a lot of people are even unfamiliar with that is. And like they did to the Jews wearing the Star of David that they did in Nazi Germany, they are now doing to the Christians. You are first wearing this badge to identify you, and if you don't wear it, that's a penalty. And then once they, they do that, now it's on their homes. It's on their door to identify that this is a Nazarene, a Christian. Right, and right. at that point, then it's, it, hey, let's go shopping. Hey, you like that dresser they have in there? It's yours. Go ahead. They're just a Christian. They're just part of the Demitude. They're right, a kafir. Right, they're an infidel. Right. Go ahead. It, it, it's a free-for-all. And they're chased right. from their homes. And you have it where you hear stories, especially in the Afghanistan and Pakistan, where they're chased literally into the woods with just their clothing on their back and forced to hide. And, right. and the fact that we just stay blind to it. And I'm so glad that someone like you wrote this book because you do personalize it. You bring it back to the heart. Yeah. You, uh, I, I don't know if you have a, a, the, the book in front of you or at least the cover in front of you, but uh, if you do, you'll, you'll notice that uh, the way the, the kind of font that they use to write ISIS begins, the last two letter NS in begins is that figure, the Nazarene, that's the Nun character in the Arabic alphabet. It looks kind of like in English, kind of like a U with a dot in the center. Uh, that is the Nun character. And uh, I had the graphist who did the cover uh, sort of make the, 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 the N and the S look like that. <laughs> For, so that's a kind of inside story, if you wish. Uh, but uh, you're right. They would paint the doors with the, the character showing that they were Christian. Uh, they would, uh, they, they, you know, they kidnap um, babies. They kidnap uh, children. Uh, they kidnap women and men. Uh, it, it, there's a story in the book about, the kidnapping of the of the narrator's sister, uh, the ransom payments, and people struggle to make ransoms payments for years. The United States government would refuse to allow somebody to uh, come to this country on an immigration visa if they paid a ransom payment to get one of the relatives set free, because they said they had been providing financial support for terrorism. Can you believe yeah. that? I'm trying to get my my, yes. my husband or my wife released from jihadi terrorists, and they demand that I pay a ransom payment. Otherwise, they're going to murder him and cut him up into 15 pieces. And so I, I managed to get the money together, and I pay it, and I get my loved one out, and now I'm considered a terrorist by the United States. It's really – it's just one tragedy leads to another. As Kenna. a friend of mine, Mike Cutler, says, it's bass backwards. Go ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host, Curtis. Curtis, Kenneth, hi. Um, the United States and, and its Western allies have defeated great armies such as Germany's and, and Japan and even Italy. What makes it so different when it comes to Middle East um, terrorists? And why has it why has it been so so difficult to to annihilate these guys 
That's a great question, uh, Curtis. It, it really is. And I think there, there are a couple of things. First, we, like the Israelis, uh, have operated with tremendous restraint on the battlefield, um, restraint that was not shown in World War II. Um, you know, we have not enforced or not carried out total victory. We've not, we've not fought these wars to total, absolute crushing victory on the ground where the adversary realizes that he has been completely and utterly defeated. And we have not crushed their spirit. We've not cr- crushed their will. Remember, von Clausewitz says that uh, war is just politics through other means, and it's a, a means of imposing your political will on the adversary. And in a way, if you wish, we failed in the way that we carried out the war fighting because we have not imposed our political will on the adversary. We have not utterly defeated them to the point where they accept our terms for surrender. Uh, and I guess you could say we've done that because war is no longer the same as what it was in 1945, or there's not the popular support in the United States for that type of total warfare. Um, but I think that fundamentally that is the reason we do not take these wars to total victory and we settle for half victories or half measures. Well, you know, um, People always look at Islam as a religion, but it's not. It's a geopolitical mixed with religion. You know, it is a complete way of life. They don't understand that you cannot separate politics from Islam. It is not like Christianity or Ju- Judaism where we, we have a government and then we have our church, which are two separate things. And yes, they may overlap, but Islam is government. You can't separate it. Uh, absolutely correct, and and that's a that's a message. I mean, you see that in the book. Uh, there 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 are various passages with a Muslim cleric in the book who explains a bit of that. I learned about Islam uh, in Paris many years ago from an Iranian Shiite ayatollah, a dissident ayatollah, right, who was against Khomeini and the Islamic regime. But that was the first lesson that he taught me. He said, "Ken, don't think of Islam as a religion. It's not. Uh, it is a whole way of life." It is, as, just as you said, Andy, it's government. It's the way we educate our children. It's the way we get married. It's the way we bury our dead. It's, it's how we think about science. It's about whether women can drive a car. It's a whole way of life. It governs everything. For everything in life, Islam has an answer, uh, very unlike, um, uh, you know, very unlike uh, Christianity and Judaism, which separate the spiritual sphere and the moral sphere from the political sphere. They don't do that in Islam. Um, and, and that's why it's, um, you know, you can't just focus on mosque and you can't just focus on imams. It's why imams or the so-called religious leaders in Islam often kind of merge into something else, such as a terrorist group. ISIS Begins is the story of that merger between the jihadi Muslim groups and the intelligence stay behind networks of Saddam Hussein. Uh, that's really what led to the creation of ISIS. And, and we can even put a, our finger on the timing of it, of when it started. Uh, we, you know, the jihadis were pretty well defeated during the surge in 2007, 2008. By the time President George W. Bush left office, Iraq was going 
in a in a much better direction than it had been before, and a certainly a better direction than it is in today. And then Obama came in and said, "Look, I made a campaign promise to pull out of Iraq," and he said, "Oh, and we're going to do it, you know, by 2012, and we're going to start in 2010." So the jihadis knew they had a date. They knew they had to lay low until that moment when the U.S. was going to pull out our combat troops. Uh, but as soon as we did that, they could. Uh, they could come out of the darkness, having used the intermediate time to 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 organize and to gather the forces, to gather weapons, to gather intelligence, and then they were able to swoop through uh, northern Iraq and Syria in a romp with no one to oppose them. So um, we, we know how ISIS begins, and we know exactly when ISIS began, uh, and none of this, frankly, was a secret. It was well known to people in the U.S. government, and it was absolutely – I've been warning about it for years before it actually happened. It, it, was, it was absolutely obvious to anybody who spent any time on the ground in northern Iraq that ISIS was going to come through there. You know, uh, we have someone that made a comment in the chat room, and obviously he, does, he has never read the Quran or the Hadiths. He has not studied what Islam is. Uh, he said Thomas Jefferson read the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam. Uh, however, Thomas Jefferson read the Quran because he was fighting the Barbary Wars. He was fighting the Muslims who were kidnapping American seamen and holding them as slaves and for ransom. The, the uh, anthem to the Marine Corps from the shores of Tripoli, where they had to go in to rescue the ambassador, his wife, and daughter. They had to flee because Muslims were persecuting and chasing them. They wanted to kidnap them and hold them for ransom. We have been fighting Islam since its birth, and we, people do not understand it. It was a misguided monk that was tutoring Muhammad, which is, explains why there's so many uh, references to the Bible, misplaced references, misrepresented references in the Bible, uh, of the Bible in the Quran. Uh, we gave birth to a, a an evil upbringing. I'm so glad you mentioned both of those stories because they're both tremendously important. Uh, absolutely correct. Thomas Jefferson studied the Quran because he wanted to know about his enemy. And the Quran was their book. And it was the only book they read. And it had the answers to everything. So Thomas Jefferson wanted to read it. He wanted to understand what motivated his enemy uh, the, the Barbary pirates, as you mentioned, who were capturing U.S. sailors in the name of Islam to carry out jihad. And they used those terms at the time. Uh, and you're also absolutely right that uh, uh, Muhammad was tutored, uh, the, the so-called prophet of Islam. He was, he was tutored about the Bible and about the Torah uh, by uh, a Christian monk named Bahira. And I tell his story, and ISIS begins uh, through, there's a kind of, uh, a, a, there's a plot line, if you wish, about that uh, in the book. So you can you learn about the origins of Islam. You learn about this monk, Bahira, who was uh, uh, giving lessons. Actually, he was dictating portions of the, the early Quran to Muhammad. And as he goes on through the years, he becomes increasingly worried and finally aghast at the evil monster he's created or he feels that he has helped to create whereas his goal was to help to spread the gospel to the pagan tribes of the arabian peninsula and in the end what he wound up doing was spawning a false prophet and a false gospel uh, and and that's the story of what that the sect uh, uh, of that monk did 
becomes very becomes central to my book ISIS begins. So you learn quite a bit about that as the book goes on. It's a uh, it's a historically accurate uh, uh, piece, uh, but it's also you know fictionally a lot of fun to work with. Yeah, it is. Uh, now you you lived in Muslim countries. You know what it's like on the ground. You yourself were kidnapped at one point by Muslims. That's right. That is correct. I was uh, taken hostage in in Lebanon uh, in the early 1980s, Uh, and I've spent a great deal of time on the ground in Muslim countries. Uh, I have many, many friends who are who are uh, Iranian, uh, you know, Persian, Kurdish, whatever, uh, Arab uh, background uh, from Iraq, from Jordan, from Lebanon, uh, very dear friends and people I respect highly, uh, people who are Muslims. Uh, the the you know what's what's funny there's a there is a, a schizophrenia inside the the Islamic world uh, that you see when you're there on the ground. Uh, on the one hand, there is there can be a tremendous warmth uh, from ordinary people, uh, a tremendous sense of family, a tremendous sense of, of moral righteousness and moral values that we would uh, actually we would identify with. Uh, from ordinary Muslims, and then you have Islam, and then you have the Quran, and then you have the mosque, and then you have all these jihadi groups, and and you sometimes it makes your head explode to 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 just to figure out well how can it be how can you have all of these decent people and this awful abhorrent ideology, and what makes some people uh, susceptible to that ideology. So they do evil things such as joining a jihadi group and beheading people and attacking Christians and persecuting people. And other people seem to be not so susceptible to it. What is it? What makes the difference? And I don't have a real answer to that, but I can just tell you it's a very real phenomenon. (laughs) It it is the ground truth in Iraq, in Jordan, in Lebanon and elsewhere. There are wonderful, tremendous, decent people who seem to be not susceptible to this disease, to this evil. Uh, and luckily that's the case. That, that is fortunate because we have one person in the chat room said he's been to various Muslim nations like Senegal, Mali, Guinea, Egypt, Niger. But he, Niger right now is going through a major civil war. Uh, you do have areas where you know they can coexist with us, but then you also have where Islam is the ruling factor, such as in Iran and other countries that makes it the problem. So you do have good people trying to live decent lives, but Islam is the problem. Uh, Islam is the problem. And, uh, uh, and this is why you see, for example, the, the in Iran today, let's just take Iran for a second. In Iran today, you have an Islamic state. They are the first Islamic state uh, in in the Middle East uh, before Pakistan, before Afghanistan, and before the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. And what are they doing? They're imposing Sharia law on everybody. So Iranians who are opposing the regime, uh, in many, many cases, they're also rejecting Islam. Uh, A number of Iranians are embracing uh, Zoroastrianism, which was uh, the the belief, uh, the the kind of historical belief system in Iran and in uh, Persia and Kurdish areas before the invasion of Islam in the seventh century uh, A.D. 
so they've gone back to Zoroastrian beliefs, um, which are much more humanistic, if you wish, uh, in nature. Um, and you have elsewhere people who have who have rejected uh, ISIS, who have rejected um, uh, political Islam. Well, they become, in many cases, secular. In many cases, secular. The Kurds, um, the, the Pajak, which is an Iranian Kurdish opposition group, I've spent time with up in the mountains, the 13,000-foot mountains on the border between Iran and Iraq. They're Muslim background, but they're secular, completely secular, and they believe in a secular political system that, comp- that leaves church, mosque completely on the outside. That kind of reminds me of um, Turkey. When I visit Turkey, um, parts of it is Islamic. They have some some Christianity. But what I found amazing was the fact that um, at the time I visited Turkey, it had only been like about three or four years when they started allowing women to drive and wear pants. Another thing that amazed me was an area in Istanbul called the compound where there was like like Hamburg, Germany, prostitution and, and things like that. Uh, it was hard for me to reconcile the fact that I was in a partially Islamic country, yet they had a little quarter there with, with a red light district. It was really amazing. Right. Right. Well, in, in Iran, they've institutionalized that, uh, and they and and it's and get this, the 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 prostitution rings are run by clerics. <laughs> They're run by clerics <laughs> who deliver certificates of. I, you can't make this stuff up. Who deliver certificates of temporary marriage? <laughs> right. So you pay the cleric for the certificate. Right. I, I grant you a temporary marriage for one night or for four hours, or whatever. And here's the pimp wow. fee. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the certificate fee. And uh, so, but that's how they do it. Uh, it. It's it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. They can talk themselves through the donut hole. Huh? <laughs> but you know the one. The Muslims that are secular, the ones that are, do not believe in this political Islam, uh, they then are viewed as apostates then, Jew political Islam. Yes. So they themselves can yes, be subject to persecution. So either they yes. wear Islam on their sleeve or they also face persecution. If you have a country that is moderate, uh, someplace such as Indonesia, where they're able to exist side by side, and at one point Egypt had that ability. I, I don't think it's it's there anymore. Um, they would be deemed in today's political Islam apostates, therefore subject to a fatwa and death. Uh, absolutely correct. And and uh, uh, you mentioned Egypt. So the Muslim Brotherhood uh, took over power after the Arab Spring, after Mubarak was kicked out. And again, try to impose Sharia law. And, and so if you were a Muslim in Egypt and you didn't want to live under Sharia law, as you say, you would be considered uh, a bad Muslim at best or an apostate at worst. And an apostate can be killed uh, uh, by under Sharia law, under Islamic law. So, yes, it makes it very, very difficult for Muslims. They are often the first victims of ISIS and groups like ISIS. Uh, and it's something that, again, these realities, the, the, the ground truth of this war between political Islam and the rest of the world is something that, that not enough Americans understand. And that's why I wanted to write, write a, a novel, uh, a book like this with real characters in real situations 
Um, again, anybody who's been to northern Iraq uh, will immediately recognize my description of the road between uh, Erbil in the Kurdish area and Mosul uh, and, and the dangers that lurk in the desert just on the other side uh, of the road. Uh, so these are things, these are, these are ground truths that I wanted to bring to uh, uh, Americans reading this book. It is it is a fascinating book. It's called ISIS Begins, a novel of the Iraq War. And people can actually pick it up uh, by going to your website, which is your name, KenTimmerman.com. And you've got other fantastic books on there. Good Lord, how many are you up to now? <laughs> well, this is my third published novel, and uh, I have 11 books of nonfiction. Uh, two of them were New York Times bestsellers when the New York Times actually did track <laughs> sales of conservative authors, which they don't do any longer. Uh, but uh, no, I've been at this for some time. Well, you, you've got 13 more to go to meet up with my co-host. He's got 24 out there. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, well, indeed, Curtis. I guess I guess that's going to take me a little time. <laughs> I'll tell you this much: none of them. I mean, I talk about Islam, but I don't go as far as um, Salman Rushdie, who Santana verses put him into um, hiding for life. I guess. Right. And I'm not sure that he foresaw that when he wrote the book, uh, because if you know, Satan, uh, his, his novel, Satanic Verses, is a little bit obscure at first. <laughs> and so I was surprised that Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, the Iranian uh, Ayatollah who first put the fatwa on him, uh, would have even gone near the book. Uh, but uh, I am guessing that all they had to do was tell him it it uh, dealt with the, the so-called satanic verses in the Quran where uh, Muhammad uh, comes back from his cave after supposedly listening to the angel Gabriel, but in this case, probably Bahira, the Nestorian monk, and talks about a three-headed uh, or three-person God, right? A triune God. And that is supposed to be, he, he learned later on, was satanic. And so those verses are considered the satanic verses that were uh, taught him by the devil and not by the ancient uh, uh, by the angel Gabriel. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because um, Muhammad, when he came out of the cave with his visions, uh, he said it was the devil that he was talking with, and his wife, I think on the third try, convinced him no, it was the angel Gabriel. <laughs> so his right. wife goes, right. "You sound crazy because you're talking to the devil. So you better change this so people don't think you're nuts." <laughs> Well, Actually, now, that is remember, how Islam remember was that, born. That, that's right. And remember that Khadija, that was her name, the wife, she was a very successful merchant. So uh, she was very good at marketing. <laughs> I think she understood <laughs> She understood it would be better to market uh, Muhammad's visions if he were speaking to the angel Gabriel than to the devil. <laughs> oh, man. We have someone mentioning neo-Nazis. Uh, what people don't realize is that through World War One and World War Two, Germany used Muslims. They used uh, Muslim troops, and it was the famous um, uh, uh, Imam Mufti uh, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Thank you, thank you. I had a brain fart there. Who put together the SS Waffen troops made up purely of Muslims, and it was he who instituted the programs to kill the Jews in the concentration camps. So, you know, Nazism has a lot more in, in common with political Islam. Matter of fact, uh, isn't that, Hitler was yeah, studying isn't, Islam 
to build his country. Isn't that fascinating? And to, to hear that story, and by the way, uh, Arafat, Yasser Arafat, was the nephew of the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and always looked up to him as a young man and as an adult. Um, I wrote a, my, my earlier book came out not too long after the September 11th attacks called Preachers of Hate, Islam and the War in America. It, it explores uh, this whole phenomenon of uh, Islam as a, quote, religion of peace and of Muslim anti-Semitism. Um, and I go into those stories. I look at, I look at the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, uh, his pact with Hitler, and how um, uh, even more modern Muslim leaders continued to revere Hitler. Uh, for example, Sadat, somebody who was considered to be a, a peacemaker, you know, the president of Egypt who, who signed the first peace agreement with Israel. Well, if you actually go and look at a picture of Sadat when he's coming to Jerusalem to address the Knesset in 1979, uh, go back and look. See if you can find online a picture. Google, Google that picture and look at the tie that he's wearing. It's Nazi swastikas all the way down. And he's wearing that into the, in, into the Knesset. Absolutely extraordinary. He was still an admirer of Hitler. You have today Abbas, the, uh, the president for life of the Palestinian Authority, uh, elected for a four-year term for 13 years ago, right? Uh, Abbas did mm -hmm. his uh, uh, dissertation. On, uh, uh, on the protocols of the elders of Zion, the, the anti-Semitic uh, uh, slander that was uh, cooked up by the Tsar's secret police in 1905, used by Hitler to uh, justify the extermination of the Jews and used by Muslims all over the world to, to justify killing Jews. I write about that quite a bit in Preachers of Hate uh, as well. I've interviewed many, many Muslim clerics who told me, oh, yes, the protocols of the elders of Zion. I've got my copy right here. <laughs> you know, of course the Jews run the world, and the Jews run Hollywood, and you know, they control the banks and all world finance, and on and on and on and on. And this is uh, this kind of filthy blood libel propaganda is used in school books in the Palestinian territories uh, and, and in other places in the Muslim world. It's really awful and people don't understand it they don't they don't see that you know the people are fooled and they don't realize that you know if you convert from islam into any other religion you're an apostate and subject to being killed you know the only religion that forces you submit is islam and matter of fact islam means submission no other religion forces you to join it but only Islam does it by the sword, uh, which people don't understand. And we have people such that call themselves modern Islams, like Dr. Zudi Jasser, who has been on the show. Uh, he has to have 24-7 security because there's a fatwa on his head because he wants to change Islam. He wants to rewrite the Quran. And there is a moving movement out there. Matter of fact, we're going to have a young lady on the show uh, here on Friday, and she's going to go head-to-head -head with my expert, uh, Usama Dakduk, who uh, runs the straight, the Grace, no, the Straightway Ministries. Let me get that straight. And he was born in Egypt. He was forced to attend a madras because he was a Christian, but he had to attend the madras. Uh, he's now a pastor here in the United States. So it's going to be interesting to see the two of them go head to head and to 
see if moderate Islam can exist, which I say in truth, if, as long as you have Islam, you cannot have a moderate Muslim. Uh, as long as you have Islam, it's very difficult to have uh, a moderate Muslim because the jihadi groups and the, the what we would call extremists, they're not extremists, they only have to point to the book and they say, ah, Quran says, and then they tell you what the Quran says, and it says kill the Jews, it says kill the Christians, it says do not take them as your friends, it says slay the infidel wherever you find him, uh, and on and on and on and on. Uh, again, I, I wrote about that in Pre- Preachers of Hate. I've got a section on my website uh, at kentimmerman.com uh, where my books are listed, so you can find it up there and find information about it, and you can read some of these things uh, online. Uh, you don't have to buy the books. Of course, I'd love you to buy the books, but you can read at least to get the idea of what they're about uh, at that section on books in my, uh, on my website. Yeah, it's it, it's a very interesting book, and I loved it. And I, I'm looking for a sequel. Do you have plan a sequel on this one? Uh, well, I might because uh, I, I like you know the the one of the characters in the book, uh, uh, Danny Wilkins is uh, a lieutenant colonel, uh, special forces in in uh, ISIS begins. He's now working for the um, uh, the the inspector general, the special inspector general for Iraq, for Iraq recovery, Sigurd. Uh, and he was in an earlier novel called Honor Killing uh, when he was a major and, and, and based in, in, in Iraq during the war in an earlier, uh, a couple of years before that. So it, it's tempting. It's tempting to bring a character up through a, a, a new uh, set of circumstances. My next book is actually going to be a memoir, uh, a lot of fun, a book about uh, hostages, uh, arms traffickers, uh, dirty tricks, and spies. Uh, <laughs> it t- takes you through a lot of the battlefields of the Middle East uh, and, and, and other places, dark rooms and, and shady meetings and uh, quite interesting characters, actually. But uh, that, that should be coming out at some point in 2019. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you end the book uh, – in a way, which I'm not going to give everyone around it, but you mention in the book about Muslims are seeing visions of ISA. And for people right. who don't know, ISA is the, the Islamic name for Jesus Christ. And we've right. had a couple of uh, Muslims that had become gone from Islam into Christianity who all have talked about this. And it's a phenomenon that's occurring within the Muslim world where Christ is appearing in their dreams. Right. And directing them towards conversion into Christianity, which in that case also makes them <laughs> persecuted even twice as hard because they are now Muslims who are now Christians. Uh, so it, it is not just the Assyrian and the Chaldean uh, Christians there that have been there for centuries since uh, Christ. It is now those right. that are converting that are also being placed in danger, too. Absolutely right, and and you are so right to mention this. Uh, the, the, the dreams that that, are, that Jesus is coming to people in in dreams, and and I've heard so many stories about this, in particular inside Iran, but in Iraq as well, um, where he he appears, and and you know Jesus comes to the places I guess where he's needed the most, right? I guess that's really what it comes down to. Uh, I did not come to help the righteous, but to save sinners. And so he goes to places where the uh, where he's needed the most, where the, there's the most violence. He makes his appearance. Uh, he's, he came to me when I was uh, in in the darkness of an underground cell in Beirut, being held hostage, and 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 comforted me and, and kept me alive, literally kept me alive and saved me. Uh, 
literally and physically and spiritually. So uh, I think that's uh, you know that's what Jesus has always been about, um, and and uh, I see that as the one hope in the Muslim world, in particular in Iran, where uh, visions of Jesus have been very very strong, very powerful. Kenneth, yeah, there is a book there. That, out there about that. Uh, I forget what the name of the author is, but it is a growing growing phenomenon. Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> Kenneth. Um... I have to say, since Obama left office, there's one thing that I I do not miss, and it was a term he loved to use, and that was um, ISO. Uh, can you tell us why he was so fond of using ISO, which has something to do with the Levant? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think um, <laughs> the contrarian in him, the snob in him, you know, wanting to use the term Levant, which is kind of a seventh term for, uh, you know, Lebanon, Lebanon, Israel, by the way, Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. Uh, I could never figure it out. And, and I don't think uh, anybody else knew as well, but once he said it, well, then the entire U.S. government had to Yeah, all the journalists, everybody. ISO, oh ISO this, ISO that. And, and, isn't it so, yeah, Curtis? And you're so right. Isn't that something we really don't miss? And they've all forgotten it. <laughs> and think about this: you know, before, what, what, before Obama was Pakistan, after Obama, Pakistan. Everybody yeah, right. was saying he, Pakistan. Pakistan. <laughs> like yeah. He do that as well. But but you know the, the the funny thing is the funny thing is Obama was was being you know pretending to be a snob, but he was actually being an ignorant snob because he was mixing up. The English and the French, if you wish, or English, saying the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, which nobody nicest would use, where in fact the term in Arabic was was of Iraq and Shams. Shams means Levant, but in Arabic. So the if he were going to be an accurate snob, he would have said ISIS and not ISIL. No, what what really got me is just before uh, Kerry left, he did two things. Uh, he criticized uh, Israel. They said Israel cannot exist as a democracy. Excuse me? <laughs> Israel is a democracy? They can't be Jewish and a democracy at the same time. Uh, really. Uh, then the next thing he said when he was addressing the issue of ISIS, he says, I'm going to call them what they really are, Daesh. And I said, of all people to hear that come out of his mouth, the true name of what ISIS actually is, that floored me. He criticizes Israel, and yet in another breath, he he says the one name that ISIS does not want to be recognized as being called in the Western world. They can say it among themselves, but not to the Western world, which I found amazing. Yeah, very interesting. You point that out. Daesh is is how they are referred to in a derogatory fashion by uh, Muslims in Iraq and in Syria and other places. They're called Daesh in Arabic, and 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 they re- and you're right. They do not like the term. Uh, because it has a derogatory connotation. Uh, they call themselves the Islamic State, right? And, and uh, so to hear, you're right, to hear uh, Obama say that again, an ignorant snob. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be a snob, but displaying oh, his ignorance at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, we've got just a few more moments before our next guest calls in, uh, but I, it was so much fun to have you on. I'm telling people they've got to go to your website to find out more about you uh, because you've got a fascinating background in history. Uh, you also worked to help get uh, victims of, of Iran uh, compensation at one point where the uh, Supreme Court had finally ruled on it and awarded it, I think that was about two years ago. It was amazing because about the same time, Obama was sending money over to Iran right. in unmarked right. bills, right. hiding it. That's, that's right. That's what I do in my that's what I do in my day job is is helping the victims of nine eleven uh, get uh, collect on their terrorist uh, judgment against the Islamic State of Iran. And I lost uh, three. Three friends of mine, three people I knew uh, when I was with NYPD. Matter of fact, I was on mm. duty in February of '93, just across the um, the way no, right. bridge from, and I was on duty in the 90. And uh, my PBA delegate happened to be Patrick Lynch. He's now the um, uh, the the head of the PBA, the Police Benevolence Association. Now he was my delegate back then. Uh, so he went running out the door, grabbing just people, anyone and everyone, to respond to the Twin Towers back in February of '93. Uh, and he's been doing a terrific job with the PBA, New York City. Uh, amazing! Uh, I'm so proud of him. So glad I had worked with him. But uh, Ken, it has been so much fun. Uh, do you think this book will end up being made into a movie? Because I noticed some people had been posting asking you whether or not that would happen. <laughs> well, uh, I'm certainly very much open to it, and uh, you know, people that know how to get me on my website. There's email uh, for me, and uh, uh, you just have to Google my name, and you'll find my email as well on online. But uh, I'd love to do it. It would be a, a, an awful lot of fun, and again, it would help to drive home this message. This is the reality of what it means to be persecuted for Christ. Well, you know what? I'm going to probably see if I can get a hold of someone out of Kevin Sarbo's uh, office, because if anyone could do this book justice, I think it would be him, honestly. Wonderful. That'd be We'd love to do it. But hey. Please. Well, Ken, <laughs> thank you so, so much for joining us, and God bless for all the hard work you do, sir. Thank, thank you. I appreciate it, Annie. God bless you. Thank you. And thank you, Curtis. Take care. Right, Come back again. Out. All right. Oh, absolutely. We're going to definitely have you on more often. Uh, Ken Timmerman, check it out, kentimmerman.com. There's a link on the show page, so if you're listening to the podcast or watching, just click on the link and go directly to his site. I do believe this is our next victim up on the bullpen, so let's welcome aboard candidate for senator out of the great state of Missouri, Austin Peterson. Good afternoon, Austin. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure. Uh, people know you because you ran on the Libertarian ticket for president back in 2016, and now you're running for senator out of Missouri. And you're there right now uh, with Trump in the state, and he's actually uh, stumping for your, your uh, opponent, Hawley. Uh, but yeah. you have a great following. So you've got 11 people going into the primary, which is what, in about a week and a half, two weeks? That's yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, the president is here uh, in Kansas City, Missouri today, stumping for my uh, swamp pick, the Mitch McConnell pick in this race. Um, and, you know, we, we should remember, of course, that the last time that the president meddled in a primary, in a Republican primary, uh, we got a Democrat in Alabama 
uh, these things tend to backfire. Uh, the grassroots have not been able to get positions from Attorney General Josh Hawley on important matters of state, including his foreign policy, uh, including his policy on import taxes. Uh, there's quite a bit we don't know about the Attorney General, and uh, conversely, I've been extremely transparent about what I believe, fighting for life, liberty, the Constitution, less taxes, less regulations. I've been completely plain about who I am and what I believe. Um, the, right now, I'm the only Republican who is polling in double digits against Claire McCaskill. Now, remember, this is a state where Trump won by 19 points. It should not be a surprise that I beat Claire McCaskill by 16 points. But the hand-picked golden boy uh, of the Mitch McConnell elite, uh, he's doing either within the margin of error on the polls against Claire, or he's losing to her against Claire McCaskill. Sometimes I wonder if the Republican establishment would rather lose with a candidate that they can control than win with someone like myself, who they cannot. Oh, boy, you're going to be a fighter in the Senate. <laughs> Hey, listen, folks, he's right. He's right. It did backfire in um, Alabama. So let's see what happens. Like I said, you've got you're going up against 11 other Republicans in this primary. So you've got an uphill uh, battle going on. Um, But you mentioned, you know, about tariffs and things. I know that uh, there's a bill that just passed in the House recently looking at whether or not taking away the ability of the president to negotiate tariffs and bringing it back to the House uh, the way the Constitution was originally written. Uh, How do you stand on that? Absolutely, we should do so. Those kinds of things should come from the legislature if they come at all. But, of course, they shouldn't come at all because we just got tax cuts passed last year. It's very possible that the new taxes, the tax increases, uh, could wipe out the gains that we have seen from the tax cuts last year. And now I'm hearing something about a direct subsidy to farmers to make up for the fact that they're being hurt by the tariffs. This is economic illiteracy writ large. I don't care who's in the White House. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green, what have you, there is no argument to be made against free trade. There are no free market economists. There's no liberal economists who disagree with the concept of free trade. Free trade lifts people up out of poverty. It helps the poor and the middle class in the United States be able to compete. It helps us to buy products for consumers, to buy products for lower prices. It increases everyone's quality of living. Uh, To me, I think that this is blatant pandering to a demographic of people who have not been yet introduced to the basis of our fundamental ideals, which is free markets, economic freedom, and personal liberty. Missouri farmers are being harmed because they're being hit on both sides of this tariff. They're being hit on the steel, aluminum, and tin side because they purchased that to make their grain silos. And then they're being hit on the soybean tariffs uh, soybean, wheat, and corn side of tariffs, the, uh, side of the tariffs, because then they'd like to sell their products in the international markets, and it makes it more difficult for them. So this doesn't help Missouri farmers. It doesn't help the American people, and I oppose it. And uh, what about you know subsidies? Because a lot of farmers are getting subsidies to not grow products. <laughs> uh, I actually was raised on an tobacco, uh, old tobacco plantation in a little town called Peculiar, Missouri, uh, and I'll never forget when my dad told me that if he wanted to, he was eligible, and he didn't apply for it, but if he wanted to, he could collect money from the government in order to not grow tobacco on our family property. I couldn't believe how ridiculous that was. 
but that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, uh, economic policy that you get from democratic socialists. That's the kind of economic illiteracy that we see from Democrats like uh, uh, Ocasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders. And and it's it's never been a strong Republican, at least not a conservative position, for us to want to. Uh, hike taxes uh, on the people that we're seeking to represent. But again, many in the Republican establishment are very similar to the Democratic establishment. Many of them all agree on the concept of big government. We last freedom fighters, the true conservatives, the true libertarians, we're sort of the last bastion, the last holdouts against statism. Uh, But uh, if you really want freedom, I mean, to me, I, I, I guess I can sort of bastardize a Milton Friedman quote here, where underlying the lack in economic freedom is a lack of belief in freedom itself. Uh, we need freedom to trade. We need lower taxes. Uh, we need to double down on the tax cuts that we've had. We don't need to raise any more. And we need to compete in the international marketplace on even grounds. I agree that our allies are absolutely hypocrites when it comes to this issue. If this, at the end of this, we get fewer barriers to trade, it's a good thing. And I'll support that and I'll praise it. But at the moment, as a candidate for the U.S. Senate, I want to be perfectly clear to the people listening and to the people of Missouri that there is no compromise to be made with those who want to raise taxes. Boy, I'm, I'm liking what I'm seeing. Maybe I'll move to Missouri. My <laughs> Senator Lacey Graham. Oh, man. But we are. Goodness. We may have someone to run against Lindsey Graham coming up in 2020. We're working on it. Uh, so good luck. May be able to fund and get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, good luck to us. Yeah. Um, now uh, we we have uh, a growing concern of the Muslim Brotherhood's influence in our government, and it's insidious. Uh, there also has been a movement to have them listed as a uh, terrorist organization along with CARE. Uh, where do you stand on that issue? I'm open to that. Um, what I would want to inform my uh, your listeners is that they should definitely take a look at the man who founded the Muslim Bro- Brotherhood and his ideology. His, his name was uh, Saeed Al-Qutb. Uh, and al Qutb was a man who really founded the modern uh, Islamist movement um, uh, in the world that led to the uh, foundations of Al-Qaeda and eventually to ISIS. Uh, but the Muslim Brotherhood has operated as a terrorist organization in the past. It's incompatible with Western ideals. And if they are committed to acts of terrorism, then they are an enemy of the United States and should be classified as such. Uh, however, our first, my first thing as becoming a U.S. Senator next year is that I will be receiving a security clearance, and I will also have access to confidential information that I do not have right now. So I can't give you a fully informed decision, only a decision based on my historical knowledge of the institution, uh, uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood, and it's one that we should absolutely look at with a jaundiced eye and one that I will absolutely be uh, scrutinizing next year when I have to make these kinds of decisions. Now, you mentioned security clearance because uh, Trump and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders (laughs) started up a a windstorm Mm. yesterday uh, about pulling security clearances from former uh, members of the cabinet and staff. Um, How do you stand on that? Because, you know, I grew up where when you left the job, you left the keys. You didn't walk out holding the keys. You left the keys with the boss and you walked away. Uh, But for some reason... You now get into an administrative position or, or some other position such as uh, McCabe and Brennan, and you walk away and you get to keep the keys. That right. Sound right, to me. right. 
Sure. There, there might be instances where outside security contractors might need to have access to some of that information. In that case, it would make sense for some of these people to have access to confidential security briefings, but we should look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. But if the President of the United States feels that he cannot conduct diplomacy and that he cannot conduct domestic policy because of the threat of people who might be leaking information on his administration, then I absolutely believe that he has the right and should take away security clearances from those people who may pose a danger to our democracy democratic processes. Um, the, the left seems to be entirely committed to taking down President Trump, even if the collateral damage is our American economy or our national security. And, and if, as a matter of fact, um, uh, the, the com comedian Bill Maher, who's sort of a liberal icon, said that we need to crash the economy in order to stop Trump from being reelected. I mean, that is the kind of thing that drives moderates and libertarians and skeptics into the arms of President Trump, into the Republican Party, because that is, that is such an evil uh, ideology and mindset to take to want to bring harm to the people of the United States because you despise one man so much. I would never stand for that if that was coming from a member of my party or my group. Now, I, we need to do what's best for the people of our country. If the president feels he can't conduct diplomacy properly because of these people, uh, I say absolutely. Pull the security clearances and get it done post-haste. Right. Our previous guest was Kenneth Timmerman, and he wrote a book uh, dealing with Islam. Uh, what, the, what a lot of people don't understand not all Muslims believe in the fullness of political Islam. You do have people that behave secularly, yet they would be viewed as an apostate. Uh, your view on Islam as it is being portrayed today? That's a very good question, and you know, you're asking an interesting, a person with an interesting view on this because I am entirely secular. Uh, I'm not religious. Um, it's probably one of the chief political attacks that my opponents use against me, the fact that I don't identify with a particular religion. So I'm actually able to take a broad look at each of the religions and make a determination based on my analysis of the facts. And the facts are that while not all Muslims are committed to Islamism or to radicalism, a great many of them are. It is a very large very large amount of Muslims who believe in things like honor killings, for example. Uh, that is not the minority. That is not the minority of Muslims. Unfortunately, it's a very large percentage of the Islamic world that still believes in these kinds of barbarous practices. See, Islam never had the benefit of coming into contact with a type of, um, what would you say, I wouldn't say Renaissance selfing, but the Enlightenment. Uh, Islam never had the sort of contact that that Judaism and Christianity did with the Enlightenment that sort of blunted the, the harsh edges of the type of militant religion that Islam purveys, which is, an, which is a religion that is not divorced from government. You see, one of the things that makes the United States so beautiful is that we do not have a Christian government. We do not have a Jewish government. We do not have a Muslim government. But the type of religion that Islam is, it is inextricably linked to, from their church to their state. And that is something that, you know, as an agnostic, as a skeptic, as someone who has an open mind when it comes to these things, that has to change. That attitude must change. That means more education, and that means more of a championing of Western ideals, which I stand firm for. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we as American people, we've got to learn what it is that these people believe, why they believe it, and what we can do to encourage moderates in the Islamic religion so that they can, so that they can essentially clean up their own house. Because in some, in some ways, if you don't clean up your own house, someone else will do it for you. Kenna, <laughs> to that when one. it comes, <laughs> when it, 
That's a, this is Austin, the, not, not Kenneth. Oh, Austin. that's right. Austin, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, when it comes to the Supreme Court, um, do you feel that conservatives would be better suited to defend the Constitution when it comes upon constitutional crisis? Like right now we have a lot of Muslims being sworn into um, public office now. And at some time in the future, I'm sure when there's enough of them in our system, they're going to challenge the Constitution and, and try to change it. What are your views on a Supreme Court selection? Uh, well, I think Kavanaugh is overall a very good pick. Uh, there is one major uh, question that I would have for him if I was in the confirmation hearings. He's very good on life. Um, I'm a pro-life conservative. He's good on that issue. He's very good on regulations, which I agree with him. Uh, and he's good on religious liberty. The one thing that I have a little bit of a qualm with is the fact that he may not be as strong as Justice Neil Gorsuch was when it comes to our privacy, when it comes to our Fourth Amendment rights. If you want to listen in on a phone call of an American citizen, if you want to read the email of an American citizen, or if you want to get one of our text messages, you need to get a warrant. That's the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. We are to be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures. To my knowledge right now, Justice Kavanaugh has a weaker position than Justice Gorsuch does on the Fourth Amendment. Now, to your question related to do I worry about Islam and their uh, willingness to um, to use their, their government or use their religion like in Takiya to take over our, our system of government. I don't worry about that so much because what happens is that subsequent generations of people who come here to the United States tend to blend in with the culture. They tend to have fewer children. And one of the reasons why they have fewer children is because their, their daughters get educations like they can't do in many of these Islamic controlled countries. You know, making sure that women get a good education is one of the best forms of birth control that there is. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think that that's, that's what will happen uh, if many of these people do come to our country and they come here legally and they assimilate properly. Assimilation is what is important. You have to accept our democratic processes. You have to accept the Republican Constitution as it is written. You have to uphold the law regardless of your, act, uh, of your type of religion. And, of course, Article 6 of the United States Constitution states clearly and and plainly, uh, that there is no religious test to hold public office. The same law that protects them and may ensures that they are able to hold office with their particular religion also protects me, the person without a, t a type of religion. It protects me so that I can also run for office and be a representative uh, and, and uh, be a good representative of the, pe of the people of Missouri. So there's a lot of different factors that go into play when it comes to people who are religious, when it comes in. I don't want to be like Bernie Sanders, who actually, in a, in a Senate hearing, tried to use a religious test against a person who was being confirmed for office. It was wrong when Bernie Sanders does it, and it's wrong if anybody else does it. I believe also Pelosi did it, as well as Maxine Waters did it, too. It's amazing. It's coming from the left and not from us, the, the, the religious right. means test. When I saw that in the hearings, I was screaming at the TVs. Like, <laughs> I will say no, this, and, and, and I will say this, um, and it has been something very problematic here, but there have been people in my state who, says, who say that I should not hold office because I do not share their, tip, their type of religion. Uh, and it is, it is problematic. It is still a, there is still a fear of the other. There is still a fear of the outsider. There is still a tribalism that exists here in the United States. Uh, and it's very difficult for someone who doesn't proclaim the faith that someone holds uh, to be able to be an office holder because many people don't believe in the kind of freedom of religion that the United States really stands for, and that's a shame. 
Yeah, it's funny because I remember when Kennedy was running for election, there were a lot of people saying, well, you can't trust him because he's a Roman Catholic. He'll answer to the Pope and not to the Constitution, <laughs> which he proved wrong. But then, then right. he used that same argument right afterwards with Nixon saying, well, you can't trust him because he's a Quaker. And then they used it on Romney. Oh, you can't trust him because he's a Mormon. Mormons aren't real Correct. Christians. You hear this over and over and over again. And someone better start reading the Constitution. I know. Article 6. Print it it out and put it up above your desk, ladies and gentlemen. Article 6 of the Constitution. No religious test. Uh, It's it's natural. I think people just have a natural uh, distrust. I actually heard that uh, people of my uh, viewpoint are less are a less trusted minority even than Muslims here in the United States. It doesn't surprise me. I think most most of the time it's because what we we don't we fear what we don't know or what we're unfamiliar with. Um, and the, the I think it was Mark Twain, who's a good Missouri boy himself, who once said that travel is fatal to prejudice and bigotry. Uh, I encourage anybody to get out there and to travel and to learn from other people and to speak your mind, speak your truth in hard words today. And uh, if you change your mind tomorrow, say what you believe tomorrow. But uh, the best thing for us to do is to enlighten ourselves, to embrace enlightenment principles, which founded this country. Uh, and religious liberty is one of those important religious, uh, one of those important enlightenment principles. And, and one final thing on this topic, I'll say this. I highly recommend anyone who has not read this, Thomas Jefferson penned the Virginia Letters of Religious Liberty. It was such a great accomplishment for Jefferson that he actually had it written on his tombstone as one of his greatest accomplishments. And in there you will see the the seeds, the foundation of religious liberty in the United States, as Thomas Jefferson explained it. But very briefly, what he said was, we don't get our rights because we're Christians or Jews or Muslims. Our civil rights and our civil liberties are intrinsic to our humanity. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These rights are intrinsic to our humanity, and they are given to us by our creator, not, to our, not by our government. So there, and therefore, we don't, it doesn't matter what religion you are. We are all endowed with the same unalienable rights. Amen to that one. Amen. Um, Amen. <laughs> now I want to go over to uh, immigration. And it, it's funny because we've got the left that wants completely open borders. And yet we've, we've said this many times. We've had guests say this many times. They don't leave their front door unlocked or their front gate open. They don't mm-hmm. want anyone and everyone just to walk into their home. So this nation is our home. So why would we ever want to have open borders? Uh, well, of course, it's, that's a semantic question. You'd have to define it before you could before you could really answer that. Um, but the the left wants open borders in a sense, and the right wants to shut down all immigration indefinitely until we can quote figure out what's going on. Uh, neither of these not neither of these solutions are going to solve our problem. Um, the 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 fact that the problem that we have is that our current immigration system is broken, uh, and if we want less illegal immigrants then we have to make it simpler for people to become legal immigrants. That means that we have to have a security check, a disease check, and you have to be able to pass a citizenship test in English and English, and then you're done. But if you're trying to lower the overall levels of immigration to the United States, the unintended consequence of that will be that you will have a spike in illegal immigration. So how can we solve this problem? One, kill the incentives. 
the welfare state is the problem. If you have a welfare state, you are going to have a natural draw, a magnet to the type of people who are attracted to those kinds of policies who are incompatible with Western civilization and Western values and the values of liberty. That's what you need to do. Kill the welfare state. That's one bad incentive. Another major negative incentive that we have and nobody wants to talk about is the fact that we are funneling billions of American dollars south of the border and it's pushing hundreds of thousands of people north because of our violent, bloody, prohibitionist war on our own people. The war on drugs, the federal war on drugs, has been, one of the, has been a bigger failure than alcohol prohibition ever was. It's led to the rise of giant cartels, well-funded cartels that commit violence on our southern border, that commit sex trafficking and other crimes against the people of the United States and the children here in the United States and of Mexico. We, de we have destabilized and corrupted the government of Mexico because of the, the, the war on drugs. Um, Milton Friedman, famous uh, libertarian economist who most conservatives and Republicans admire and revere, said that the role of the government in the war on drugs is literally to protect the cartel, meaning that if we did not have such a massive $27 billion a year wasteful war on drugs, a war, which is a war on our own people, then we would not have the types of MS-13 gangs and cartels that we have on the southern border. The security risk on the southern border would be lessened because, of course, you know, there are too many pharmaceutical companies and major health many, uh, insurance companies and things that have an interest in ensuring that these things are not going to be legal because, of course, they won't be able to profit from some of these things. I speak to veterans here in the state of Missouri. I, I speak to people who suffer from epilepsy. I speak to people who are suffering from opioid addictions. And all of them would, be, would love to be able to use a natural remedy to their symptoms, symptoms like PTSD uh, and, and uh, uh, strokes that you get when you suffer from epilepsy. These people would like to be able to use medical cannabis. Uh, I think they should be able to do so. I don't think that the government had the proper constitutional authority to regulate these substances in the first place. Um, to me, the federal war on drugs needs to come to an end quickly so that we can stem the violence on our southern border, so that we can bring the HIV AIDS rates down in the United States, so that we can stem the violence in our inner cities, so that we can protect our police officers who are, whose lives are being put in danger because they are enforcing these victimless crimes, so that the minorities in our communities in places like Ferguson will have respect for law enforcement because we'll have good laws. I think it was um, famous guitarist Frank Zappa who m might have said, it's, it's attributed, but I'm not sure if it's confirmed. Frank Zappa once famously said that the United States is a nation of laws, randomly enforced and badly written. Uh, and it's because of these randomly enforced and badly written laws when it comes to immigration, when it comes to welfare, when it comes to drug policy, that is why we have a crisis on our southern border. And until we are willing to tackle the underlying problems, no wall will stop the greatest civilization of tunnel builders the world has ever seen who can build submarines, who can build drones. Hell, why don't you start a ladder business on the southern border as soon as they start that thing? Because any good capitalist knows that walls are not immune to ladders. They also fly in on airplanes. Again, solve the underlying problem. Kill the welfare state. End the federal war on drugs. Fix the broken immigration system so that we can make it easier for people to come here legally who are the good actors, and we can keep the bad actors out. Well, you're saying to kill the welfare state. What about, you know, first moderating down to welfare to work? 
where you have people that have a limited time on welfare. You're only allowed so much time, and now you must have a job. I like that idea. I also like the idea that we do something like we did during World War II. Did you know, for example, that there were a lot of Jews who were trying to flee to the United States seeking asylum, including Anne Frank, but they wanted to come here, but because we had quotas, they were not able to come here safely to the United States? That's a problem. If the church was allowed to step up like they were moderately during the World War II years, then they would actually step in and fund a lot of these people who are actual asylum seekers or migrants or refugees. Private charity would be able to solve many of these problems. But yes, there should be work requirements if you wish to seek welfare. If you're, if you're capable of working, then a work requirement should be placed. I absolutely support that. Also now, uh, unemployment, because when I was a teenager in unemployment, you had to go stand in line, and if you got up to the window one minute late, you would be penalized. Now that you just get uh, a debit card in the mail and it automatically goes onto your card and no one checks to actually see if you're actually looking for a job. Yes, I completely agree. There has to be accountability in these programs. I don't agree with these programs, but if we can only get a reform, then the kind of reform that I want to see are work requirements. All right. We've got so much more to talk about. You know, one of the things we have, when people say that America is exceptional, that shining uh, city on a hill, we get criticized. But shouldn't we as Americans be proud of our exceptionalism? Absolutely. And to me, American exceptionalism, even though it's been sort of taken over by the neoconservatives and the liberal internationalists as to believe some, uh, as to ex- uh, construe a militant foreign policy and imperialist foreign policy, that is not what American exceptionalism is to me. American exceptionalism means individualism. It means individual liberty over collectivism, communism and socialism and collectivism. That's the opposite of what America stands for. In the, United, the United States was not founded so that the government could make us into better people. The United States was founded so that we could be anything that we wanted. That's individualism. That's why there's so much music and art and patents and trademarks and copyrights and film and television that we export around the entire world. It's because of our freedom. That's what makes us exceptional. Freedom comes from individualism and a respect for individual liberty and individual rights and the natural intrinsic rights of every man and woman on this planet that we are born with. Uh, those rights are not granted to us by government. That is what is exceptional about the United States, and you're damn right we should be proud of that. I, I couldn't be prouder to be an American. We're not perfect. We've got our mistakes, and, uh, we, you know, but we shouldn't apologize for what really makes America great, and that's freedom, liberty, constitutionalism, individual rights, and ultimately the philosophy of individualism in total. All right. Now, we've, we've been stuck and mired in this war on terror since 9-11. Actually, to be honest, we've been in, at war with terrorism since the turn of the – not the turn of this century, the turn of the previous century. Uh, it's a long mm-hmm. history of attacks on us, uh, and we're still at it now. Where's your stance on that? What do you think we should be doing in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran? Well, terrorism is a tactic. It's not a, like it's a state, act, a state actor. We're not 
fighting the types of wars that we fought during World War II, that our parents and grandparents fought. Uh, we're, we're fighting a guerrilla war. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we have abrogated some of our civil rights in this process. We've, we've sacrificed liberty for security. We've given away our Fourth Amendment rights to intelligence agencies that are conducting warrantless surveillance of American citizens. Uh, and I think that we've spent over $2 trillion in these no-win wars. Frankly, I think that there are some provisions in the Constitution that would allow us the kind of leeway that we need to take care of sincere terrorists. As a matter of fact, we used to, we, we still fight pirates uh, off the, the uh, Horn of Africa in, in a similar method that, that we used to. Actually, if you didn't know, many people don't know that when we fought the, uh, the War of Revolution, the, the war on the high seas was actually fought almost entirely not by the American Navy, which was, I think, only three or four ships at that time. It was fought mostly by privateers. Uh, it was fought by contractors. These were patriots. These were heroes. These were people that stood up in times when the country needed them and they took their own time and equipment, um, just like many American citizens have done to go and join the Kurds in the fight against ISIS. These are the kinds of solutions, the kinds of quasi-state to non-state solutions that any fiscal conservative should be looking at. This is a proper Article One, Section 8 role of the U.S. government. Uh, it's called a letter of mark and reprisal. It's, a, it's, it's how Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson fought the Islamic terrorists of his day. Uh, they were called the Barbary Pirates. But these ideas are unpopular. These are old ideas. These are old written with quill, you know, feathers, <laughs> you know, feather pens uh, into our, our nation's history. But they've been long forgotten. Only once after 9-11 did one congressman stand up and make this kind of suggestion. His name was Congressman Ron Paul, and after the attacks on 9-11, he offered to revive this provision in the U.S. Congress so that the president could sign these letters. But they refused, uh, and we've taken a state actor approach to a guerrilla actor problem. And because of this, we have made the same kinds of mistakes that we made in Vietnam uh, and in other types of guerrilla battles. Until we can look at this with the type of fourth-generation warfare mindset that most most modern military generals, I think, would agree with that we're not fighting these wars properly and because we don't have an exit plan and because we're not good at nation building. Um, I think that we've overextended ourselves in the Middle East. I think we need a strong national security, one that protects our, uh, our safety. But at the end of the day, to me, the American people are going to have to accept a certain level of risk in order to protect our liberty. We don't want to turn into Great Britain. We don't want to turn into the U.K. where they ban all guns, and now they're banning knives. Because if there is a terror attack on American soil again, like there have been in the U.K. and other regions, then we're going to need the Second Amendment. We're going to need to be able to defend ourselves. That's what I want. That's what I'm fighting for, and that's what I'll carry with me. The ideals I'll carry with me to U.S. Senate next year. Austin, uh, well, over the last... All right, go ahead, Curtis. Okay. Well, I was just going to say uh, we we have senators in Congress today who no longer represent the interests of the state, you know, um, which they once did. Do you think we should uh, repeal the 17th Amendment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am not and a fan why? of the 17th Amendment. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the 17th Amendment. The 16th and the 17th are probably my two least favorite amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, of course, should I be elected uh, in the next three months, 
uh, it will be due to the 17th Amendment. Um, but I happen to think that the way that the uh, founding fathers originally outlined it was that senators being chosen by their state houses would have meant that those senators would be more beholden to the states. Um, one of the big problems with this with this theory, and why we I think we've lost the argument on this, is a broader argument about what we the people in the Constitution means. Many scholars who are opposed to the 17th Amendment in practice believe that the Constitution, instead of saying we the people, should have said we the states. That would have set a stronger precedent for the states having more sovereignty and more power in making their kind, those kinds of decisions. Uh, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment might have been res respected more strongly. But of course, hindsight is 2020. We don't know for sure what would have happened. Um, but as it stands, I don't see the 17th Amendment being repealed anytime soon. However, I do think that it is one of the reasons why we have senators who are completely out of touch with their constituencies back home. See, I've, I've always said we should take it one step further that the pay that we have for our congressmen and senators come from the state they were elected from. If the pay and all benefits come from that state, you will be beholden to that, that state because they hold your wallet. I, I the tend to agree. They should not be voting. They shouldn't be voting for their own I pay tend, raises. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. But one of the um, one of the problems, of course, is that you know you know it's legal for Congress to perform insider trading. They can purchase stock in a company that they're going to legislate for, and then grant a a, a subsidy to that industry, and then directly profit from it. As a matter of fact, Claire McCaskill, the Democrat who I'm running against, is shown to have tens of millions of dollars in federal contracts, which go to her husband's business. She is literally directing money to her own pro to her own pocketbooks via her husband, and yes, they file taxes separately. But we all know that if they're married, then they're definitely going to be sharing some finances. So how is it that Congress can get away with that kind of corruption? So I'm really not really that concerned about the fact that senators and congressmen are raising their own pay. $174,000 a year is a pittance for most of these people because they know for a fact that they can, let, they can regulate and legislate the industries that they invest or decide to punish or they decide to reward. Um, that's the real corruption. That's the real problem. It's not the take-home pay that they're getting on their paychecks. It's the off-the-book stuff on the side and the industries that they're regulating and investing in. That's the problem. That is a huge problem to name Pelosi, uh, Maxine Waters, Harry Reid. They all became multi-millionaires by insider trading. And if I did it, or you as a civilian did it, we would be behind bars. Yeah. But the Congress the and the Senate is given carte blanche. Don't forget the Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, should, should we say Uranium One? Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny, I, you know, some, some anonymous donor tried to give me something like, you know, three quarters of a million dollars in cryptocurrency of Bitcoin, and I had to refuse it because, of course, I'm only allowed to accept $2,700, whether it's in crypto or, or in Federal Reserve notes. And, um, you know, if I was, I, I always joked, I said, well, if I was Hillary Clinton, I'd just launder the money and then worry about it later. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Uh, right now, uh, we're trying to dismantle Obamacare. And it's funny mm -hmm. because when they were trying to pass the bill, they hated it when we called it Obamacare. But then he finally embraced it. He said, oh, it's Obamacare, calling it that. Uh, it has been a, 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 a failed system, which we see, you know, 
insurance companies don't want to handle it. People are given no options or what little option they have costs them more than their mortgage per month. Um, what would you do to help dismantle Obamacare? Well, I'd vote against it. Uh, they did get rid of the individual mandate, which is a good thing. I think it's already on life support, and it's time to kick it off the cliff. The fact of the matter is, is that we need health care to, to be able to get to more American citizens. But because of the way that our insurance cartels are set up, um, you know, they aren't allowed uh, typically to sell across state lines for individuals, although that looks like that might be starting to change very soon, thanks to Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky and to an executive order that was put in place uh, by Donald Trump. But until we can have competition in the marketplace, we're never going to get better prices. Now, there is one area in healthcare that I'm specifically interested in because it involves corruption, political corruption being directly the cause for the increase in, spice, uh, the increase in prices of pharmaceuticals. And that's these um, companies that are called PBMs, uh, Pharmaceutical Benefit Management Companies. And what they do is their job, when they first originated in the 1920s, was to act as an intermediary between health insurance providers like hospitals and the patients so that they would negotiate the prices of drugs, of, of, of excuse me, doctors and hospitals. So they would negotiate the prices of drugs, they would buy in bulk, and therefore they could get better pricing. In the 1980s, we passed these laws called safe harbor laws. And what safe harbor laws do is it protects them from antitrust. It protects them from competitive business prices. And, of course, what happens? Instead of these pharmaceutical benefit management companies negotiating the lowest prices, they're now negotiating the highest prices. And guess who just happens to be one of the largest beneficiaries of donation money in the U.S. Senate from these companies but Claire McCaskill? If you've ever had to pay $300 to $500 for a bag of saline solution, a.k.a. salt water, if you've ever paid that kind of incredible price for a drug which costs three cents to make, you can thank Senator Claire McCaskill in the state of Missouri. She is one of the most corrupt, least popular members of the entire U.S. Congress. She also voted for Obamacare. She was Hillary Clinton's best friend. She takes money from these PBMs, and she's a direct reason for, one of, for her why, one of the biggest reasons in the United States why we have a broken and expensive health care system. It's because of Senator Claire McCaskill, who I fully plan to dethrone three months from now. Well, we'll see what happens. you got in um, just a week and a half or so, you've got the primary coming up. So I'm wishing you a lot of good luck on that one. You know, um, Trump is over there. He's addressing the VFW rally. And veterans are, are often the last person in the health care system that is, is being taken care of. You've seen abuses through the VA. We now have a new VA director that just got sworn in uh, yesterday to take office. Uh, what would you be doing to help the veterans get what they deserve? They, they volunteered to protect this country. We promised to take care of them should anything happen, and we're falling down on the job big time. Absolutely. I would be a vote to transfer ownership of the Department of Veterans Affairs to the veterans themselves. I think that it's high time that we find a council, a board of directors of, of uh, talented veterans who have experience in this industry, who would like to be able to take stock in the VA, let them privately own it, and then let them manage it and let them distribute the health care. The government doesn't do a whole lot of things very well except break people 
break things and kill people. And that's really all the government should be doing. Yes, we need to take care of our veterans. Absolutely. Should the government be providing financial security and support for veterans' health care? Absolutely. But they should have more options in the private market so they don't have to worry about these kinds of wait times. If the Department of Veterans Affairs was transferred to private ownership of military veterans, I guarantee it would be better run, more people would get care, and it would be done at a lower cost. And they should have the option to go to whomever they feel they want to go to instead of being funneled into the Absolutely. VA hospital. Absolutely. Damn straight. <laughs> All right. Now, there is one thing you and I are going to have a disagreement on, uh, the mm-hmm. cost of transgenders in the military, because this is a lifetime of treatment where they have to go through hormone treatment for the rest of their life. And when they mm-hmm. do the studies and the costs, you know, for a regular military person, you're talking about an average of $50,000. But mm-hmm. for a transgender, that jumps to $8 million. Now, you suggested they could be in place in areas that are not combat where you wouldn't have to be worried about, you know, whether or not they can get their medications out in the field, but still you're, you're dealing with a soldier that you or a clerk anywhere from 35 to 50,000 compared to 8 million. Now, doesn't that make the balance sheet uneven? It does. Uh, and maybe you won't agree with me, but uh, t- I'll tell you this. Um, my opinion makes absolutely no one happy for the most part. Um, and here it is. Uh, I, <laughs> Do not, I think that it is an elective procedure, that the government should not be required to pay for elective procedures, just like we don't pay for ble- breast implants or, or anything. like We don't pay for veneers or, or things like that that are cosmetic, um, and I don't think that the United States military should be required to pay for that. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that they can't serve. I absolutely do. We actually had a, a Navy SEAL who transitioned after her time uh, in the U.S. military. She served our country honorably and well. There are roles that can be performed by people who want to serve our country, and I don't think we should be turning people away. We have a hard enough time as it is trying to get good recruits into our U.S. military, um, but I don't believe that we should be paying for their transitional costs or for that kind of a or that kind of a procedure or for the care for that. That is something that you should pay for on your own dime, and it should not be on the back of the U.S. taxpayer. So there's my perfectly politically incorrect opinion that no one agrees with. Well, I agree that we should be paying for it. We should not be paying for the continued treatment. Like, as you said, it's an elected, it is a choice. Uh, if, it, mm-hmm. if you're injured or something like that, then I can see yes. But if you decide you're going to do this, well, you either do it after you get out of the military or you do it well before and you continue to pay for your own uh, care after that. But it should never be on the taxpayer's dime. Agreed. Well, now, I'm looking to see what other uh, questions I had here for you, because I had a whole mess of them uh, on here. I think we've got almost <laughs> all through them. Uh, you had mentioned also abortion. And, again, this is a, uh, a choice that somebody makes. It's their choice uh, to have this procedure. It's their choice to get into that condition. So should the taxpayer be paying for this? Uh, absolutely not. Okay. Do you want to elaborate? Say again? Did you lose Austin? I, I sound like we lost you for a second. If you wanted to elaborate. Sorry. No, I'm, I, I agree with the policy. And I, and I apologize. I have, um, I have to run to another interview, so I have time for just one more question. All right, Curtis, you got one last one for our guest before he runs. Yep. Um, 
What are our chances in the midterms? <laughs> the red tie. <laughs> <laughs> it all depends on the candidates, my friend. Um, you know, in Arizona, there's a bit of a struggle between two anti-establishment-ish candidates uh, versus the establishment candidate. They're facing a similar problem here in Missouri where the sort of golden boy, the establishment pick, um, is trying to be rammed down our throats in the primary, but it was very, it's very likely that because of the disenfranchisement of the uh, grassroots Republicans in Missouri that he could lose to Claire McCaskill just because of voter apathy. Something similar is happening out in Arizona. Kelly Ward, uh, Joe Arpaio, and Martha McSally, whereas um, Kelly Ward is the strong constitutional conservative, very anti-establishment, and she's sort of being faded by the stalking horse in Joe Arpaio, who will not win the Senate seat from the state of Arizona, even if he were to take the general. This is a man who has run out of his own town because his own voters in his own district were unhappy with him. Um, Martha McSally is Mitch McConnell's pick. If she wins, um, it's, it's not looking good for real conservatives. I mean, it really just depends on what your goal is. Do you want conservatives elected or just a Republican? Do you support someone just because they have a certain letter after their name, or do you support someone who's a true constitutional conservative? Are we really better off because we elect a big government Republican versus a big government Democrat? What's your strategy long term? Mine's liberty, individualism, limited government, constitutionalism, economic freedom, personal liberty. Frankly, I look at country first before I look at party. Um, But when it comes to the, the midterms and the red wave, it all depends on the types of candidates that we put up against the Democrats this fall. And uh, thank you so much for your time, friends. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm very grateful. Uh, I hope if you have any listeners in the state of Missouri that they'll cast a ballot for me on August 7th. Well, Austin, good luck on your, your race there. And we're all going to pull for you. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Good Thanks. Luck. Have a wonderful day. All right, uh, check out austinpeterson.com. He's got a donate button on there if you want to make a donation to his campaign. Uh, Check him out. It's a tough race out there. It's 11 people in that field, uh, so I wish him the best of luck. We do do have to get Claire McCaskill out of there. She is a horror. Anyway, uh, we've got about uh, 11 minutes left, Curtis, and uh, looking to see what I pulled aside for extra items here. Uh, There's something that a friend of mine uh, is trying to put together uh, Dr. Christina Jeffrey uh, because of some of the people that have been getting themselves onto the national ballot for president. Uh, she's trying to get legislation passed state by state, and she's going to start here in the state of California, that the candidate must prove that they are a natural-born citizen, meaning that both parents oh, yeah. are American citizens. Uh, and she's going to try to get it passed here in, in the state of South Carolina, and then go state by state so that whenever someone puts their name on a presidential ballot, they are truly eligible to be on that ballot. And they're trying to get the wording on that. So when it does come all together, you know, I'll let her come on and talk about it. So it's it's a work in progress, but it's also important because it turns out there's this guy for the last several years. Uh, where is the hell? Late last eight years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to trying to see what the name of this guy was, but there is one guy uh, that has consistently been getting on the ballot, and he is not a natural born citizen. Matter of fact, neither mm. of his parents were a citizen of the United States. He is, but that doesn't make him a natural born citizen. Therefore, he would be ineligible. And yet. He showed up, I think she said, on eight different state ballots, and he manages to get on because there's no means test. And there should be. 
you know, if you if this is what is in the Constitution, then enforce the Constitution. That's just my take. Yeah, and you, I mean, you would think that would be established protocol. I mean, going all the way back to Washington, that um, you have verification that the candidate is a natural-born citizen. I mean, today you you, you speak of verifying your your races or something, you know. Uh, if the person, the candidate is a minority, you know, but I think yeah. we should definitely have some kind of committee or or something out there from Congress that will, you know, verify or vet the person's, um, you know, birth origins. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, anyway, um, there was also another call from uh, Trump to end the Mueller investigation. And I'm all for it. I got I'm an email. <laughs> I got an email uh, just to show what a circle this is, uh, because you know, uh, how's it go now? Comey was a protege of Mueller. Uh, Mueller was best friends with him. Um, they were also tied into Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein. They were buddies with him. Uh, they now have what is it? Thirteen uh, progressive attorneys working on this case, but in comes another individual. Her name is Mrs. Lisa H. Barsoman, B-A-R-S-O-O-M-I-A-N. And uh, this guy, Mike Spaulding, uh, sends me a lot of good stuff. So thanks, Mike, if you're listening in. He said, this woman, Lisa, is a U.S. attorney that graduated from Georgetown Law, and she also is a protege of James Comey and Robert Mueller. Uh, her boss is R. Craig Lawrence, who represented Bill Clinton in 1998. Lawrence also represented Rob Mueller three times, James Comey five times, Barack Obama 45 times, Kathleen Zabilis 56 times, Bill Clinton 40 times, and Hillary Clinton 17 times. Between 98 and 17, Lisa Barsoman herself represented the FBI at least five times. Apparently, someone does uh, care because someone out there cares so much they've actually purged all of her court documents for her Clinton's representation in Hamburg versus Clinton in 1998 and its appeal in 99 from the D.C. District and Appeal Court dockets. Someone out there cares so much that the Internet has been purged of all information containing to Barsoman. And historically, Mm. this indicates that the individual is a protected CIA operative. Additionally, Lisa Barsoman has specialized in opposing Freedom of Information Act requests on behalf of the intelligence community. And although Barsoman has been involved in hundreds of cases representing the D.C. Office of the U.S. Attorney, her email address is lisabarsoman at nih.gov. The NIH stands for the National Institute of Health. And this tactic seems to be used by the CIA to protect an operative by using another government organization to shield their activities. It's a cover, so it's a big deal. So what does this attorney have to do with the U.S. intelligence community? It really does matter. And in deals with Trump and his tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum imports, the border wall docket, everything coming out of California, the uni party, unrelenting opposition to Trump, the Clapper leaks, the Comey leaks, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions Cruisal and subsequent 14-month nap with occasional forays into marijuana legalization. Uh, last but not least, Mueller's never-ending investigation in collusion between the Trump team and Russians. 
Why does Barcelona CI operative merit any mention? The reason, and here it is, she's the Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein's wife. Wow. She is Rosenstein's wife, a CIA operative, an attorney that has her fingers in almost every pot. That is why it matters. We're down to our last five minutes, Curtis, and boy, this show has really just gone, and I love it when shows go so fast like this. It means that we're right. Oh, yeah. They're wrong. <laughs> but we're going to be back uh, here, and on Friday, we've got your friend Latanya. Yeah. Latanya Peterson, right? Right, and, then and we're I'm going to miss Zoria it. Dean. Zoria Dean, she stands for a moderate Muslim women's movement. She's going to be on here talking about moderate Islam. Uh, but to counter her, we have Usama Dakduk, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, is a good friend of the show. He's got his own show up on Saturday nights. Uh, he's also a... Uh, pastor of the straightway ministry so it's going to be a very very interesting discussion but that is about all the time we have left curtis you're not going to be with us on friday unfortunately you're going to be well actually i should say fortunately you're going to be visiting your family up in pennsylvania yeah. so i wish you a safe but i'll trip be back on- next tuesday i'll be back next yeah. tuesday uh, okay for the judge and then uh for the judge Okay. Yeah, a Tuesday would be Judge Janine Pirro. She's going to be joining us. She's got her new book out. She's been uh, hitting all the uh, the uh, things. Remember her dust-up uh, with Whoopi Goldberg on The View. Uh, check out my feed up on Twitter. There is a petition there to have Whoopi Goldberg fired, as if the station's going to do that, because they're probably getting so many good hits from that. Uh, so she'll be with us. Uh, and we've got some other great guests coming up. We're actually starting to book into halfway through August already. So thank you guys for your support and everything. Uh, Kel will be with us on Friday in your place, Curtis. So that is all, all we've right. got. And I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yada. I say good night, God bless, and be safe out there. <laughs>